The purpose of this podcast is to create a library of stories about the unique struggles, journeys, and experiences of mothers. I hope these stories instill more compassion and empathy while uniting women in motherhood. Carrying and birthing a child does not make you a mother. It's the selfless love and care you give your child every single day. In honor of National Adoption Awareness Month and all the women who became mothers through adoption, I asked Lisa Lloyd from Silicon Valley to share her story of adopting her two daughters from an orphanage in Bangalore, India. Lisa dives into why she chose adoption and touches on both the struggles and beauty of what that journey can look like. She also explains how to support adoption, whether you plan to adopt or not. The recording of this episode had some minor technical difficulties, so you might hear some overlap between our voices and some of my questions get jarbled. But without further ado, enjoy the episode. said thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to me about this. I really oh, appreciate it. Oh, for sure, it. for sure. We are very pro-adoption, so my husband and I talk about adoption as much as we can, and we help advocate for families that are interested in it. So when I heard that you were interested in talking about that, I thought, oh, that's that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's so awesome. I think it's something that's just definitely not talked about a lot, and not just for people that want to adopt, but also just the terms we use people who've been adopted or people who are adopting or just just education about adoption in general I think is important for we everyone to know. We end up educating a lot just throughout the course of our day because we've internationally adopted so when people see us they can tell you know our daughters don't look at all like us so usually people right. pick pretty quick that you know we've adopted um, but sometimes if the girls are with me they think oh my husband must be Indian and then when the girls are with him, they think, oh, the mother must be Indian. But then when they see us together, they're like, oh, no, they're definitely adopted those kids. And why the heck do these right. white people you know, adopt these, these Indian girls? And um, we get a lot of inquiries, um, mostly by the Indian community, but um, others as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. yeah, it is kind of interesting. Are people usually like friendly about it or are there sometimes people who make... You know, towards our daughter, um, we have one blind daughter that we adopted and one sighted daughter. The sighted daughter gets a lot of flack at school. So when um, the school is starting up and it's a brand new school especially, she'll get months of hearing comments. Oh, that's so sad. You're adopted. Um, your your mom didn't want oh. you and, and things like that. So she's had to get a bit of a thick skin and we've had to talk about it a lot as a family. Um, how do you respond to these kinds of comments from people? And I think... I personally don't get that too much, but I do get, oh, are you the nanny? Um, so I've been asked wow. that a couple of times, but I think it's more the staring. And when you have a child that's blind, that uses a cane, that's very petite, there are a lot of people who are staring. So that's the other thing. Um, so right. I said to my daughters, listen, you're going to stand out, embrace that. And that's part of who you are. Don't ever, you know, um, shun away from being different because, that makes you special. And uh, I think now that they're both 12, uh, at least one of them is really embracing that, which is good to see. Right. That is so awesome. I can't even imagine the challenges. So do you talk with the teachers beforehand and sort of Typically, yeah. see how they react it's to tough it? Or? Because I also don't want to give them first impressions that would be different than right. maybe what their first impressions might be. So, um, and, and also right, too, we're right, dealing right. with a whole bunch of learning disabilities and um, and some physical challenges in the mix with both of our girls. 
which with one of the daughters, we didn't know was going to have any issues. Um, we thought, you know, we got her at two years old and we didn't know that anything was going to, um, you know, be different about her. Um, and then once we right. brought home the one that's blind at five years old, <laughs> um, it became apparent that the first wow. one we brought home had a lot of issues that we were unaware of. And they either developed later on or they be- just became apparent later on. I think when they're really young, sometimes it's hard right. to know. But, you know, we liken it right. to when you biologically have a child, you're going to love your child no matter what. And they might have issues as well. Of course. So, yeah. Very true. A hundred percent. Yeah. In our particular case, if we had biologically had children, I carry uh, an eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa and it's X-linked, but the females are also affected. So I was told oh. that if we had uh, children biologically, that I would probably have my vision more affected and uh, our daughter would have a 25% chance of uh, being blind at some point in her life or losing vision and a son would have a 50% chance. So instead of, you know, gambling with those odds, we decided that it made so much more sense to adopt. And we never actually tried to biologically have children. But a lot of people assume because, you know, we've adopted them that we must have gone down that track of, you know, not, um, yeah. Trying and not being Yeah, exactly. Well, that's really, that's really interesting. So how does it affect you more when you're pregnant? Yeah, I think it's harder on the body when you go through pregnancy anyway, and your body changes a lot. Yeah, yeah, and sense. the hormones yeah, and the yeah, fluctuations. Yeah. A lot of women who have retinitis pigmentosa tell me that their vision gets much worse going through menopause. And that's another time. Yeah, that's oh, another wow. time we know the hormones are really, you know, in flux, right? So I think that's oh, probably yeah. why. But a lot of women that I spoke to that have this eye disease said that their vision didn't come back after having a child. And so I thought, you know, it's not really so important for me to have a child biologically, but it's more for me to be able to parent a child. And my husband felt the same way about it. And I know sometimes, you know, you get the wife on one page and then not the husband or vice versa. Yes. But I was pretty lucky with that. He just really wanted to parent. Um, So that was the main thing. And when we went online at the time, which was 12 years ago now, we did some research and we were shocked by what we saw the online numbers were showing 483 million children on the planet that were orphans. We could not, (laughs) yeah, we could not wrap our mind around that. And then we thought, well, why is nobody talking about this? Right. Yeah, totally. Because if they were all together, I mean, that would take up football fields, you know, full of children. Yes. Cities. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And yet here, no one's really talking about this and everyone seems so keen on having their own children biologically. Right. There are a couple questions when you adopt that people drive you crazy with. One of them is, oh, don't you miss having your own? <laughs> uh, yeah. I want to punch people when people I'm say that. Sure, you know? that stings. Yeah, yeah. I just feel like, gosh, you know what? They couldn't be any more my own in that, you know, in the middle of the night when they're sick, it's me. They have of to get course. up early, be at school by 7.30. That's me. I have to get up early. I have to help them get ready for school. You know, um, there's no one that, you know, answers to their needs except me and, of course, my husband, okay. who's wonderful. So, yeah, yeah, that mom gets the brunt of it. Of course. Right? Yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> we do. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's like that. So anyway, um, that that can be kind of annoying. I mean, it would be interesting to see, I guess, what our kids would have looked like if we had had them biologically. Yeah. But I'm not so, you know, not so keen on having to know. I actually like the diversity of our family. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. 
And I also think that the world is turning into an extremely diverse place, particularly, you know, where we live, yeah. Silicon Valley. So, um, and yeah. I've mostly been the minority uh, most of my life living in, in the Bay Area um, and being the only, you know, person who uh, had like, blonde or colored hair. <laughs> um, and I'm okay with that. I mean, that's, you know, I love Actually, Asian that's culture. So you don't really know any anything else. Yeah, well, I we moved to Australia when I was nine. And so then I experienced a really different world. Um, yeah, so I was only there for three years from nine to 12 years old. But that was really helpful just to experience what it's like to be mostly in white culture, which I think is, is very different. And these days, um, even though I'm, you know, Caucasian, I feel um, the lack of diversity, like when I go back to Perth, Western Australia, I feel that and I, I don't actually really like it. And I think there's even more staring of my girls um, there than here. Um, sure. Yeah, it's just not as comfortable. In other parts of the U.S. too. I'm like, I'll go somewhere Definitely. and I'm like, this feels weird to me. Like, I'm Yeah. Used this. I'm used to a much more diverse scene. This is interesting. So Yeah, because San Diego is quite diverse as well. So, yeah. and you tend to find, it's not always true, but you tend to find, you know, more prejudice um, in certain places. And we've uh, certainly felt it all around, um, where we've gone. We also have been clued into the fact that when you adopt a child that has darker skin, that, um, especially in the Indian community, there's a lot that's associated with that in terms of caste and her being lower caste. So to tell you one of the most shocking things that we experienced is we were coming home on Singapore airlines and the flight attendant turned to us and Anjali was in my arms and she was only two years, one month old. And the flight attendant says, did you just adopt her? And we said, yeah, yeah. And we were all excited, right? Proud new parents. And then she said, do you know you can lighten her skin? And oh my gosh. Is me? <laughs> and she said, yeah, you can lighten her skin. When I was born, I was that dark. And I, I thought to myself, I like her skin the way that it is. But of I just course. couldn't believe that somebody would say that to me and that she was dead serious and that that was really a big deal for her. And then I learned that throughout Indian culture, she was a Singaporean Indian uh, flight attendant. So I learned that throughout Indian gotcha. culture, there's this preference for lighter skin. And I spoke with a lot of my Indian friends about it because in Sunnyvale, where we live, there is almost 40% Indians here. So they said, oh, yeah, I remember growing up and always feeling less than because my skin is slightly darker, never feeling like I was fair enough or that I would be marriage material. And so straight off the bat, we started to message to Anjali that you are darker skin and it is beautiful and we love you for that. Oh, and um, and we yes. don't care who you end up marrying if, you know, they can be blue or purple or whatever color of the rainbow. <laughs> Just make sure that he's a good <laughs> yes. guy and he treats you well. Yes. And he, you know, if you want to yes. parent, that he's, he's a good parent and a good partner for that as well. Wow, that is shocking. I, I'm always shocked when I hear comments like that, yet they continue to happen. Yes, all the they time. do. And in <laughs> fact, I was listening to NPR, I think this was last year, and they did some research on local companies like Yahoo and Google and a lot of the big ones. And the Indians that work for those companies that were darker skinned reported a high number of prejudice against them because of their darker skin. So it's like that prejudice has come wow. from India and it's very rampant here in corporate culture. And I think a lot of Caucasian Americans in particular are not aware of it. But we've had our daughter be for in sure. mostly Indian environments and we've seen 
you know, some of the ways that they've you know, looked at her or treated her. And we felt like there was something there that um, didn't need to be there. And in fact, her takeaway right. has been, mom, don't put me in environments where they're mostly Indians. But um, I think that that was important for her to push through. Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think she's been doing that. She's actually in a school that's predominantly Indian now. And um, yeah, so oh, wow. that's because, you know, it's, it's walking distance from Apple. In fact, it's a couple steps away from the Apple campus. So, yeah, so oh, that wow. in and of itself is pretty interesting as the, you know, the um, corporate uh, Indian Apple folks are walking around. Then there's all these kids on their iPhones, <laughs> you know, using the technology that these guys have created. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's crazy. Almost banging into each other because they're all looking on their iPhones, you know. So it's quite funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so why did you choose yes, um, India? Yes, that's a very popular question. <laughs> well, you know. Before the time when we could all do um, Heritage DNA or um, 23andMe, we, I, I was told actually by my great aunt that I was East Indian in my ancestry. And, you know, I didn't think that was so far-fetched because I remember a couple of people with, you know, darker skinned in the family a couple of generations back when I was younger. So I thought, oh, okay. And then I had thought that I was American Indian for a really long time. And I put myself through college. And so I was looking for funding. So I was about 21 at the time. My great aunt says, oh, no, honey, you're not that kind of Indian. You're the other kind of Indian. <laughs> so here I was like, oh, gosh, really? Wow, that's interesting because I always had this pull towards Indian culture and I couldn't really explain it. Um, since about 15 years old, I was begging my parents to uh, learn how to meditate. And I loved Indian. Oh, my gosh. That gives me yeah, goosebumps. Yeah, it's, it's that's so cool. <laughs> I loved Indian food and I became a vegetarian at 15 years old. Nobody else in the family was vegetarian and I felt very strongly about it. And then I proceeded to be a vegetarian for about 30 years. So, yeah, oh yeah. So, so that, you know, um, kind of got me going in that direction. But I also had an affinity for the culture. So when you're adopting, you want to make sure that you have a strong affinity for the culture that you're adopting from. Yes. And we considered mm -hmm. local adoption versus international. And we decided that we preferred international because on the local adoption front, there was a lot of involvement by um, biological family members still open adoption. Gotcha. And that sounded right. you know, like that could be a really good thing for the child. But then some of the homes that these children were coming from, it sounded like things could get pretty complicated pretty quickly. Um, even gotcha. like with the birth moms having a lot of rights in this country. And so maybe okay. yeah. I've always wondered about yeah. that because I was actually, I didn't even understand like closed adoption and open adoption until probably like six mm -hmm. months ago. And then I was enlightened yeah. about it. And I was like, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, so, yeah. Just, so that's just how uneducated I am about adoption. Yeah. So it's just all very really interesting. A lot of people don't really know the difference, but with an open adoption, you know, you might still have that biological family still very involved in wanting to see right. you know, their biological child um, or grandchild or whatever it might be. So, you know, our right. family on my side is quite complicated. So already, um, and I think very dysfunctional. <laughs> and so I thought... <laughs> Who is in? Yeah, so, well, yeah, yes, but mine particularly dysfunctional. You hear some details, you go, wow. So, um, so I think, you know, I thought that's going to be complicated enough for, you know, an adopted child to navigate. So I felt like it would simplify things a lot if we didn't go that route. The other thing that was concerning was that with closed adoption, it could be that the birth mom wants to step back in and parent the child. After you've bonded and attached oh. with the child, there's a certain time frame that I think varies by state where she could do that. And our concern was if we bonded with a child and then she stepped back in to parent, 
that we would be devastated. So we thought a clean cut would be better, even though we might be handling in a different way some of the um, interracial challenges, which we felt prepared to parent, which, you know, maybe not everybody would be, but we felt very um, strongly that um, the world's coming together, people are working with each other from all around the world, and, you know, this is like modern family, we're going to look different than each other. Everyone was born in a different country, you know, who the heck cares, it's fine with us, so, yeah. Yes, that's so awesome. I think yeah, I do. I like the diversity <laughs> of it, and we have an extra added dimension. So we host exchange students. So after um, Anna Reshma came home, the one that was blind, who was very globally delayed, it was apparent that I wasn't going to be able to go back to work, and that she just needed so much time and energy. So um, we decided that instead of me going back to work, we would have an exchange student come to live with us. So. We went through the International Student Placement Program here locally, um, who we'd both worked for at different times, my husband and I. And we decided that we would host um, an exchange student, at least one at any given time. So we get um, $1,300 a month to host um, one exchange student. So that keeps me at home. It keeps me with our children. It brings another dimension to our family. It brings in another culture to our family life. Um, New food. Just more, more learning, learning. This is learning exactly. At home. More yes. openness with my children yeah. about culture yes. and language and different languages yes. and new food and also new religions. So that the student that we have now, who's just turned twenty, she's been with us a year and a half and she speaks Vietnamese and she's Buddhist. So we've been down to wow. the Buddhist temple with our girls. We've shared with them about you know Buddha and the, the religion, and they've eaten a lot of Vietnamese food, which they love. So I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I really am glad. And actually, it's ironic because we were going to be adopting. We thought we first looked at the country of Vietnam as an option. Uh-huh. Yeah, just looked at it briefly. And then they were closed at that time to adoption. So with international adoption, the different countries go through um, different time periods of being either open or closed to adoption by Americans. So is that based off of anything in particular or just kind of like I, random? I think it's more politics probably than anything else. I, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, sense. I think it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know a lot yeah. of Americans adopt from Guatemala because they say it's a little less expensive and you have to do two trips, but it's not as far away. The airfare is not as expensive. Um, and there's okay. a lot more people, I guess, speaking Spanish. So that might be easier for a lot of families because there's a big transition when they come in and you don't know the same language and you're trying to parent a child that doesn't know English. <laughs> Which, oh, yeah. yeah, we went through that. Yeah, yeah it is. So we kind yeah. of learned um, their native tongue was Canada, which is spoken in Bangalore, which is where they're from. So we tried to learn some basics of, you know, toileting, food, hungry, you know, whatever we could learn in Canada yeah. to help with the transition. Well, that's so, so, so cool. And so how did you find their particular work? Yeah, we worked with um, what was known at the Times World Association Children and Parents, WACAP, up in Seattle. And they represented us on the India side of the adoption. And then we went through Adopt International locally here in order to get our home study done. But what was tricky was we had started with accept adoptions in Los Alatos initially. And about three or four months later, after we did our home study with them, they closed their doors to to business. And so the home study money was lost. Um, and we had to redo oh. our home study. So a lot of the adoption agencies um, that 
do international adoption in particular are closing their doors or they're um, blending with other adoption agencies to stay alive and, and to make it. Now, the, the cost of adoption is also a bit of a tricky business too. Um, when we were adopting Anjali, her adoption costs ran to 25000 That includes travel wow. costs as well to go and get her and to bring her back. Right. And in that particular time, I had been working for a foundation fighting blindness full time um, as a professional fundraiser and with the blind population. And it was something that we could afford because we had two incomes and no children had come home yet. By the time Anna Reishma came home where we were considering bringing her home, we didn't have that extra income because Anjali was home and I was transitioning with her. Um, from institutional yeah. life to family life, which is a huge transition for a child. Yes. And for the adults, yes. parenting the parents as well. So oh, yeah. we ended up not having the funds to adopt her. So we got a promise grant for Anareshma because of her being blind. And then um, oh. because I had a background in professional fundraising, I fundraised the difference. So um, wow. all up, I guess... We, we only paid for 2000 out of the 38000 to bring her home. Wow. So, yeah, I was just like, I, told, <laughs> I promised my husband, you know, I promise you we will not go into debt for this second adoption. Um, some way, somehow, I will make this happen. So we appealed to both the blind population and the Indian population and the blind Indian population, which there is a crossover. And I happen to know those people already from working at Foundation Fighting Blindness. And we also sent out um, through corporate email accounts through people we knew uh, the information about Anarishma and us and our interest in adopting and, you know, was anyone interested in contributing to our cause and bringing Anarishma home? And what we found was amazing generosity from people, people we didn't even know writing $500 checks, um, a couple thousand dollar checks came in um, from parents who were parenting blind children. And we amazing. were like blown away. It was like, wow, this is amazing. We felt like our whole community wanted to bring Anarishma home. Yes. Yes. That is just so neat. We also appealed to the airlines. <laughs> it was American Airlines at the time that were flying into Delhi. And they said, well, we don't usually support, you know, international adoption or adoption in any way through our um, uh, Miles for Kids program. But they made an exception um, in our case. Which blew oh. us away furthermore. Wow. So we were like, wow. So we got airfare for going to India for my husband and I and for the three of us to come back covered by American Airlines. Oh, that is just yeah. more good Yeah, <laughs> I have to tell you the story of um, Anureshma's, um decision to adopt her. So, you know, it's not every husband that will agree to bring home a blind child from India. So um, <laughs> at that particular juncture it was a it was an odd thing you know I think there's some divine intervention and in probably every child coming home to some extent and no matter how they come you know yes. either through uh, our bodies or or otherwise but in this particular case yes. I was um, looking at uh, an email that came in and the email was from our adoption agency WACAP and they had said um, that there was this little girl that was available and she was blind and nobody was interested in her and was there anyone, you know, who was interested because it had been um, quite a few years and nobody had even inquired about her and they were kind of brokenhearted about it. So um, I had heard about this child through an email, through one of the email accounts that I, I or email lists that I'm on. 
And so I'd sent it to the adoption agency asking more about the child because while I was picking up Anjali, they said, there's this little girl that's here at the orphanage and you know, nobody um, has inquired about her and we are just wondering how to work with her because we don't get that many blind children and maybe you could guide us a little bit. So I had given yeah. some advice um, at the time of Anjali's adoption for this little girl. And I was curious, is this the same little girl that I read about, you know, a year and a half later via email? So I sent it to our oh adoption God, agency yeah. and then they said, well, in order to show you her information, we can't tell you either way. But if you pay us $50 and review her dossier, um, then we can do it. <laughs> so we paid the $50 with a credit <laughs> card and then saw, saw the dossier and reviewed it and went, oh, my goodness, it is the same child. She's in the same location. Oh, my gosh. And it's her. Well, while I'm That's looking nice. at the dossier, a phone call comes in just out of the blue. And it's from Foundation Fighting Blindness. And did I want to make a donation? And did I know about the latest research going on for an eye disease called LCA, labor congenital amaurosis? Well, it was the same eye disease as the child's dossier I was looking at on Arishma's. Oh my so gosh. I thought, oh my God. Gordon, 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 I have to tell you this is what's happening and that we were meant to have something to do with this child. And I cannot ignore this fact because the timing was uncanny yeah. and I just could not not have anything to do with, with her. So I spent oh. about two or three months looking at the resources locally that were available for children that were blind. Were they good enough? Was our insurance good enough? You know, could we take this on? Um, you know, were we the right family to parent this child? So, I, and I believe that we were. So I took about two months to research it out before I approached my husband. And I said, what do you think? Do you think we should do this? <laughs> and he said, gosh, you know, I don't know if we adopted her. I don't know that I could always be available there to help her, to defend her from others. You know, if someone was trying to hurt her or do anything, you know, to her. Right. And I said, yeah, but if you don't adopt her, if we don't adopt her, then her outcomes could be really poor, being blind, being female, uh -huh. being in India. It could be really bad for yes. her. And so that was pretty convincing of an argument. So he agreed. <laughs> and so then I started Aww. the fundraising. Um, and unfortunately, we could not get her home for another 17 months. Well, that was my next question. So that's yes, a long it's a process. very long, expensive, difficult process. So you're trying to... How many just trips one, do you make? Just one at the end to pick them just up. One. Um, yeah. So, and, wow. So it's all done Yeah, it is. Um, it's doing the home study. So here's the other tricky business um, about it is that we had just gone through on our, Anjali's adoption, closed the adoption, and we're doing the post-placement reports. Anjali was doing great, but none of that meant anything. We had to start the whole process all over again and do an, another home study. You're yep. kidding me. And um, open up another adoption and get background checked, fingerprinted all over again. Oh, my Which was, gosh. you know, grueling because with Anna Reshma, she was mostly being kept in a crib. She did not have a lot of stimulation. She was getting more and more globally delayed every day that she was in there. And so we were getting more and more frustrated. So we kept sending in different specialists that we knew a lot of um, – techies, a lot of Indian uh, gentlemen that were going back and forth to Bangalore every month for business. So we kept sending vitamins through them. We kept sending um, money to oh. pay different um, specialists that could come in, occupational therapists, speech therapists to work with her. And we figured even if someone only comes in two or three times a week, it's something. I it's mean, better than nothing. nothing. It's yes, something. of course. So, yes. Um, yes. so yeah, so that was really tricky, you know, for us because she was just 
was getting so delayed and very few reports were coming out about her. And what we realized is that a child that's blind in an institutionalized setting doesn't actually develop, learn and grow like a child at home. So there really wasn't that much for them to say. And that was frustrating. Oh. So we, we got minimal yeah. reports from the people that we paid um, cash to go in to work with her. So they you know, would give us some information. Wow. So when she came home, I remember this. Um, we were staring at her in the orphanage setting when we first arrived because we had her listening to music on a cell phone. The phone was so close up on her ear. We thought, oh, my goodness, how can she listen at that loud rate in her ear? It would hurt my ears. So we figured out that she had a 40% hearing deficit. And we thought, oh, my goodness. So we adopted mm -hmm. a Helen Keller. So we were really <laughs> upset. I said to my husband, oh, I think we're in over our heads. I'm so sorry. We don't know why. Losses there. So we took her to have her hearing tested in Bangalore in her native tongue, which I think was brilliant. <laughs> now that I look back on it, thank goodness. Yes. Thank goodness, That's, right? Because yes, if they tested sure. her here in English, yes. they should probably wouldn't even understand what they're saying, you know? Oh, for so, sure. no, for sure. And how old was um, she again? Almost She's five at that point. So yeah, quite, quite old. And she wasn't speaking. Like in any language, she wasn't speaking. And it turns out because of the blindness and, and the hearing issue, I'll get back to the blindness part in a second. So with the hearing, the specialist in Bangalore said, you know, she has so much earwax. We can't even get back to her eardrum. I can't see back there. I don't know what's going on. So we brought her home and we took her to Lucio Packard Children's Hospital. They put her under anesthesia, cleared out all the earwax, which they said was from years of buildup um, and that that was causing oh. the 40% hearing dif difference. And they tested the hearing on the eardrum while she was under and they said her hearing is totally normal they came out with tears in their eyes and said we don't usually get mm -hmm. to tell parents this but just so you know I mean oh. she her hearing is totally totally normal which as you know is super important because oh she's totally gosh. blind so we were so relieved yes it was just a huge thing yeah so when we brought her home and after the this um, minor surgery it was interesting her her hearing it was so her ears were so sensitive she would bear down almost like a child that's autistic with their hands on their ears for about six months afterwards because the sounds were so loud they hurt our ears oh oh my gosh I can't so we had to keep that. telling our hands down on our phone keep take your hands down keep them off your ears I know it sounds loud but you you're gonna have to get used to it so she finally did it just took right. a good five six months where she totally got used to it Oh, were you very confident that it was going, were you a little bit nervous or were you kind of like, no, I know this is, she'll get used to it and it'll be okay. Or were you kind of like, oh gosh, is this going to be a You know, thing? that wasn't as bad as some of the institutionalized behaviors that she brought home. The rocking um, okay. that you sometimes see with okay. institutionalized children to just self-stimulate. Yeah. Um, some of the other self-stimulating behaviors that are blindisms. So she'd walk around in a circle going around and around and around. She would never get dizzy. Um, flapping her hands um, and staring at the sun and eye pressing. So a lot of those uh, other behaviors were more challenging. And quite frankly, she also had been left her own devices for so long. She did a lot of stuff stimulating through um, uh, masturbation, and that was harder to eradicate. She also had head banging. So she, I think, had been really neglected. Um, in institutional, institutionalized oh. care. And that was much harder to, to deal with, um, to try and extinguish those behaviors. The head banging was really concerning because it was becoming apparent that she wasn't speaking. She actually didn't speak for almost okay. three years after coming home. So what I figured oh, out wow. through going through specialists was she had a proxy of speech, 
But on top of that, a blind child or sighted child, let's start with that, they learn speech by looking at the mama's lips and seeing how the lips and the tongue move together. So the first six months of a child's speech is staring at the mom or the caregiver's mouth. She couldn't do that. She couldn't see my mouth. So she kept putting her hands and I kept putting her fingers on my lips. So in English, she could understand how to say these different words, how they were pronounced and how everything moved together to make those sounds that made up those words. So wow. And now and she, now speaks, she English. speaks English. She stills in speech therapy. We go once a week outside of school. She goes three times a week in school. Um, that's another whole ball game. We've had to hire children's advocates to fight the school district to get maximum supports for her yeah. because they didn't really understand what she needed and they didn't always want to give it. Um, so oh. we've spent thousands in children's advocacy, um, trying to get her the support she needs for occupational therapy, speech therapy, and as well in the VI sector. So, um, visual impairment, she needs a VI teacher and a mobility and orientation instructor to access education in the same way a sighted child does. So my dad's right. blind and in my family, we have 15 of us that are now been diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa, including myself. So I'm used to working with a blind population, but I was not used to working with a child that's as young as she was, who developmentally could not rely on her vision to learn. In my family, we go blind older. You know, I was diagnosed at 22 years old, so um, I had a lot of usable vision. And then at 32, I became night blind. So I was able to do my master's in counseling education at, at 30 years old. And complete that, you know, in a year and a half before I lost, you know, more of my vision. Now I'm 48 and I can still drive during the day, but not at night. And I'm starting to feel like, you know, I'm starting to get more places in my vision where I can't see as well. Um, These scotomas are getting bigger. So, um, so is it like peripheral? Usually, yeah, usually um, retinitis pigmentosa affects your peripheral vision. But in my case, um, and why I've been allowed to drive as, as long as I've been able to, is because I have scotomas, little places throughout my whole visual field where I see and I don't see. So it's like a little bit like a mosaic, but your brain fills in those differences. So it becomes like a clearer picture. Such a, it is. such a trip that your brain it does. does it is. <laughs> but now those scotomas have gotten a little bit bigger. So my brain can't necessarily always fill in the gaps. So sometimes, you okay. know, I'll step on something because I missed it. I didn't see that there was a gap there <laughs> in vision. Um, and so I stepped on, you know, something sharp oh, on the ground or whatever, just didn't notice it. So, um, Anjali has got really good vision and she's able to tell me, mom, it's here. It dropped on the ground. It's over here. Or the dog will pick it up fast. Oh. <laughs> um, we've also had a blind <laughs> dog for about 13 years and, and that dog passed away last year, which was very sad for us, but we also got a sighted dog. Oh. And so we're going through that transition of, you know, having a, dog previously that was blind and now a sighted one <laughs> so they yeah. move really fast these guys that can see you know we're not used yeah. to that <laughs> yes they yeah, do. So... we lost our we lost our dog last year too so I can I, oh I feel yeah and when you have them that many we're... years and they're such an integral part of your family life every day throughout the whole day it's yes. really crushing yes um it, it is. is and for crushing. my dog Sakari she worked with me at foundation fighting blindness and so oh. she was a mentor for so many of my adults that were going blind that they could look at her and see all the amazing things that she could do um, with me as her handler and guiding her through words you know step up step down all of that so it was crushing to lose her and um, 
Yeah. Oh, so yeah. kids, you know, they learn and it's part of life. Um, death is part of life and it's important for them yes. to, to experience that too, as, as painful as it is. Yes, I agree. We're actually coming up on a year tomorrow. So she, she passed away the day after Thanksgiving oh, last year. Okay. And we were just talking about how we're going to, it's been really difficult to talk with my, my four-year-old mm. kind of gets it. My three-year-old just doesn't understand. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so we're trying to figure out a way to <laughs> help her understand that. But I think it just comes with age. And it does. Maturity. It does add the blindness component to that concept of death and it's even more tricky. So yeah. we actually, yeah, I yeah we, had, about that. we had to have Anurishma you- touch Sakari before we buried her to understand because she panicked when we said we were going to put her in the ground. We said, sweetheart, she's not there in the body anymore. We buried her in our backyard. So we had to have her touch her, which she was cold because she came from the vet and she'd been in the freezer overnight. So she was frozen. um, And that was also different again. I mean, it sounds morbid, but to get a child to that place of understanding when they do not see, we have to go through great lengths to have her touch live animals and, you know, all different kinds of things to try and get her to understand this is what, you know, a horse feels like. (laughs) This is what, you know, a a pig feels like, you know, they don't understand. And yeah. Yeah. You have to put that uncomfortable feeling aside so that way you can teach. Exactly. And it's in the, in the interest of her learning and um, you know, you, you realize that there's so many gaps in her understanding and you want to try and fill in all those gaps and you work so hard at it and you're so dedicated. And so many people are like, well, we have laws, we have restrictions, you know, you can't do that here. I remember we went to the pumpkin um, patch and she wasn't allowed to just go down the slide because she's blind and I wasn't allowed to go down with her. Oh, um, wow. And so, yeah, what? you get all these blocks, you know, everywhere you go because we're in California and there's lots of legalities, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone sees yeah, everyone. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. We tried to get her to understand what a dolphin was. We went to a, um, a family reunion in Hawaii and we went to go and visit, you know, dolphins and, and we didn't really believe in dolphins being kept in captivity and all of that going on, but we were desperate for her to understand what a dolphin was <laughs> and to be able to touch a dolphin yes. in the water. And so she went through all of that um, to experience it. I love that you did that in Hawaii. Yeah, that and that so dolphin cool. ended up being blind, which we had no idea. No so, Yes, yeah, so that blew us away, but. <laughs> Anurishma is an amazing child. What happens around Anurishma, I can't tell you. It's like, you know, God or the universe works in her favor. And, and I almost feel like her birth parents and her grandparents are constantly praying for her. I feel like I feel those prayers coming through, um, that she has doors oh. open to her that, you know, most children never have open to them, but it's Anurishma and somehow the doors open. And I think our job as adoptive parents are to continually especially for a blind child, keep opening those doors. When a door slams in her face, find another way, get that door open yeah. some way, somehow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Did you, did you have any contact with either of their birth parents? You, um, you, I didn't hear what you said, but you asked Sorry. me if there was any contact with the birth parents? With, yeah, with either of the girls. Yeah, you know, parents? interestingly, they're both very, came from very different situations. Um, Anjali's birth mother was uh, raped due to an unpaid debt. Um, This is rural India, and it's a very different scenario than where we live, and that's not something we could understand. She was only 13 years old at the time. Um, She was on her way to tuitions, on her way to study after school. That makes me physically ill. seriously. Um, 14 when she (laughs) gave birth, and she had a really difficult time with the birth that we know. Um, Anurishma was 
as they told us, very much a wanted child. A lot of girls in India are not considered wanted. Uh, many of them are aborted. Um, as soon as the birth parents find out they're carrying a girl, it's estimated that a million girls have been um, aborted in utero in the last 10 to 15 years. Wow. So this is a huge, huge issue in India, and it ends up being an issue in the U.S. and wherever Indians come to because of their preference for boys. Wow. So, so that with Lana really Reshma, so then most, so then most of the children in the orphanages are majority are girls or boys with special needs, like you see in other orphanages around the uh, world, um, also in China. Gotcha. But with Anureshma, her birth mother and birth father were related to each other. Very common in South India that they're either cousins to each other or a niece and um, an uh, uncle, which was the case in Anureshma's case. So the blindness was apparent because of the um, the relationship with the birth parents, um, yeah, being related oh. to one another. So that wow. you know also can bring up mental retardation or um, mental challenges, lots of other issues that that can come up when the birth parents are related to each yes. other. Yes. Wow, that is just eye-opening. Yeah, it is. There's something. There's a documentary called "Petals in the Dust," which. Uh, a contact of ours has created it. Um, she's a film director and Petals in the Dust is the film that talks about it. And uh, boy, I cried my way through that. I think a lot of women do, but yeah. yeah. Where can we, where can the listeners and I Petals in the this? Dust, I think you can Google it and there's a trailer. Um, so okay. that will lead you more, you know, to where you can to where, watch the where film. You can, yeah. Where you can find it. Yeah. So, okay. um, and that just talks about, you know, the, the problem of sonograms being widely available in India, it is illegal to find out the sex of a child in India. But the a lot of the families feel, even like the poor um, income families, that it's better to not have to come up with a dowry, better to come up with the money to do the abortion than to, yeah, than wow. to have to um, come up with a dowry for a girl. And some of the numbers are really obscured, particularly in North India, where they don't have enough young women for um, marrying to the young men. And so I have heard that um, the villages are really getting skewed in their numbers and they are um, doing some importing of women now from Cambodia and other countries to, yeah, oh yeah, to gosh. level the, the playing field so they have more females. So, so I always tell my girls, you're really lucky that you made it to the earth, that you're here, and we are going to yes. do our best to support you. Um, in any way that we can. And um, they feel, I think, very supported. Our girls do. And they feel lucky. Um, and yeah, that they've been ha having the opportunity to come to America. That's one thing that kind of bugs me sometimes is that people tell them, oh, you're so lucky. You're so lucky that you have the parents you have. And you're so lucky you were adopted. And, you know, but I really feel yeah. it goes both ways. As parents, we're really lucky. It's not just a one-way thing. It's definitely both ways. Oh, for sure. The things I've learned, you know, definitely. from both of our girls. Um, yes, I've been challenged. Yes. <laughs> but um, as they say, you win some and you learn some. <laughs> so Yes, for sure. And with challenges yes. comes growth. I yes, mean, huge growth. Nothing... I mean, the dimensions of my yes. life and my husband's life would not at all be the same. The community that we felt around us of Indian support, um, our families that are visually impaired, um, you know, that children who are blind, we, we would not have garnished the support and have the network that we have if it wasn't for bringing home both of our girls. That's amazing. And so do your family 
they're all full support. Actually, that was very tricky business. Um, My mom, who lives in um, Western Australia, said, what's wrong with a good old American white baby? And oh that was pretty upsetting. Um, my dad, who's, who's blind, oh. also didn't really understand. And my, my two parents talked to each other after being divorced and not talking for over 20 years. They called each other up over our adoption. No yeah. way. Yeah. Oh, my god! So they thought, and I think that they thought that some way they were going to try and stop it. So my dad's sister works with neonates in Wyoming, and she – um, just before Anjali was due to come home, told me that there was a white baby boy that needed a parent um, in her hospital and would we be interested in parenting him? And I oh said, nope, we have a daughter and she's um, been in process to come home for two years. One month, we're about to travel and go and get her. Absolutely not. We're not, we're not bringing this, this other one home because you know, we have made this commitment and we're serious about it. Yes. So I think yes. um, once our daughter came home, my dad, you know, fully accepted her and realized she's here now. But I, my dad's from South yeah. Dakota, and I think there was very different than how I was raised in Silicon Valley, and the open mindedness yes. just wasn't there. Um, but I'm really pleased to say that my dad has opened his mind and his heart, and he um, has grown as well because of it. My mom and I still Beautiful. haven't talked. Um, and it actually has been home 10 years now. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So. I was, I was doing some reading on adoption before we, before we talked. And, uh-huh. um, a big thing that I was reading is that even if you feel like you're ready, a lot of times your family members are not supportive and you have to kind of teach them how to be supportive because definitely and particularly those comments yeah yeah, so for sure I think with Indian families it can be even harder because up until recently they weren't even adopting their own Indian children many of them were not um in India and now that's been changing um which is good to see um but I found there was a lot of pushback in Indians adopting Indian babies um and that I think that makes me sad because for a lot of yes. those particular individuals, they were having infertility issues. And if they just want to be able to parent, then that should be embraced. Yes. But yes. I think there was some stigma um, in the culture. I think you see more of that stigma in the 1950s in the U.S. and before. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times people weren't told that they were adopted. But that is not the adoption culture these days. You, For sure, you tell your child that they're adopted. And you tell them everything that you know about their adoption situation. And that can be tricky because with Anjali's adoption situation, I don't even think she knew what the term rape really meant. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. How do you even approach that? Well, actually, it's interesting. I I used to be a rape crisis counselor um, in my early 20s when I was working. Everything comes in full circle. Well, it does. (laughs) That's why when they told us in the orphanage, do you want to hear, you know, Anjali's adoption story? And I was like, yes, I definitely want to hear. And when they told us, I said, well, you know, they said that there was an, a Norwegian family that was in line to adopt her, but they backed out and they were so upset that this family backed out. And I said, you know what? Don't be because I used to be a rape crisis counselor and I feel oh. that this child was meant to come to us um, and yeah. particularly to me so I could help her through this at some point in her life. Um, yes. And so, you know, that's that's the thing. There's a greater plan. It's much bigger than what you and I can plan some way, somehow yes. is being carried yes. out on this grand level and it can blow you away when you sit and think about it a hundred percent yeah yeah so I recently you don't you don't know what's going to happen in the yeah 
You don't There's know some why sort things of happen connection. at the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But you look back and you go, whoa, that's what was going yeah. on, you know? <laughs> yes. So when the orphanage yes. workers heard about my background and get crisis counseling, you should have seen their faces. They're like, oh my <laughs> goodness. Like, okay. Yeah. So yes. there was no doubt in their mind that, you know, Anjali was meant to come to us. Um, so oh. how do you tell a child about that? So very interestingly, a few weeks ago, uh, Anjali came to me and said, mama, at my new middle school, there is another child that was adopted from India. And I said, oh, really? You know, tell me her name. Tell me a little bit about her. And she said, well, do you know that she told me that her birth mama was raped? And I said, Anjali, you share a very similar story to this new friend of yours. Let me tell you, that is your same story as well. And that was the only piece of her adoption story I had not told her. She just turned 12 recently, and I, I didn't think she even knew what the word meant and I felt like developmentally right. we had to wait but because yes, yes. the conversation was brought up by her I think this happens a lot in India and other countries there's a lot of babies that are here because women were raped um, mm. and so this young gal at school shared that with Anjali and so Anjali asked me exactly what does that mean and so I told her you know what it meant and you know, sometimes as parents, you think, oh, this is going to be heavy. This is going to be deep. Yeah. This is going to be hard for her to hear. She was just like, wow, okay. And then she yeah. accepted it and, okay, mom, what's for dinner? <laughs> and I was just like, wow, okay, so great. Um, yeah, we're, yeah. we're, we're going to have, you know, idlis or a sambar or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, children always seem to surprise me with their reaction to things sometimes yeah yeah you don't always know how they're going to perceive you know what they're being told and um it maybe at some point you know that'll circle back around and be a heavier deal maybe right right? that's possible but what I'm really clear about with her is that it's only one tiny part of your identity and um she's really learning to be a much stronger girl between you know being darker skin between being adopted between having a sister that's blind that everyone stares at you know, she gets mad when other people stare at her sister. She's like right Aww. there. She's like staring right back at them or, you know, she'll say something to Aww. them. So she's, she's learned to step it up. Um, she was beating up at school a couple years back and she actually told the, the girl, the white girl <laughs> that was beating her up. She actually said to her, you know, you're angry right now. You're mad, but you need to focus on your breath. Just because you're mad, it doesn't mean you can beat me up. And then the person stopped. I'm I'm crying. Yeah. Can you imagine? So um, it blew me away. I was like, Anjali, that's amazing that you were able to say that. And the principal was like, wow, (laughs) you know, where did she get, how did she know to say that? And how was she able to stop the aggressor by, you know, by saying that in that moment? And um, there's a a course in social emotional learning in um, elementary schools called Soul Shop. And Anjali took that course. It was offered at her elementary school. And that's wow. how she was able to do it. So we meditate every morning. It's been a year and about four months between Anjali, Anurishma, and I meditating. Um, I've been finding um, Anjali has now been diagnosed with ADHD. Um, rather than medicating, we decided that we would try more natural paths. Um, yes. Dietary. We, we took um, dairy out of her diet. Turns out she had a dairy allergy. Um, and lots of other food allergies. She ended up with uh, 23 food allergies. And for some odd reason, I shared 25, um, uh, 23 of the same 25 food allergies as her. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Which doesn't make sense. Genetically, we're not connected, but obviously there's something environmental going on here. So yeah, that's crazy. It is crazy. It really is. Um, 
So uh, the meditation has really helped her with being calm. Her other fellow students that are in her specialized learning classes are saying, how come you're so calm? How can you have ADHD if you're calm? I have ADHD and I'm not calm like you. And she says, well, I meditate um, with my mom and my sister every morning. And then the school's been, you know, asking some questions um, about that. And so we've been trying to see if we can get meditation in the schools because I think there's a lot of kids that are being medicated that maybe could use a better exercise program, a low sugar diet or a no sugar diet and some meditation. Yes. Um, it's crazy to say that I actually was a after school yoga teacher. I did an enrichment program oh for kids. That's great. And my and the biggest biggest thing I would hear back from parents is I not so much the yoga but the meditation. My kid comes to me and tells me that they can't concentrate and then says, "Wait. My teacher, my yoga teacher told me all I have to do is take some deep breaths and calm down." And they're like, "It's my, the parents would come to me like, it's crazy. My kid's never been able to be calm before. And yeah. now they do these breathing exercises and they're calm. So yeah. I love hearing that yeah. from you because yeah. I try to do the same thing with my children. I have a child that's extremely sensitive mm-hmm. and she gets very emotional mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. throws very large tantrums. Yeah. <laughs> and so the way that we get her to calm down is by taking big breaths and I rub her chest and I say, just take mm-hmm. some you know, deep breaths and calm down. And it's been the only thing that's been able to help her. So. She will always have her breath. That'll be yes. there till, you know, the, her last that breath, right? So true. Oh, so yes. it's one of the best things to teach our children, especially in this mad, crazy world with gunmen coming into the classroom and all of the other stuff that our children are dealing oh, with. I can't even I imagine. I mean, we've often thought about running away to Australia <laughs> to get away from, know. you know, the current president and all the craziness that yes. we're experiencing here in the U.S. It, I don't really recognize America as the same America that, you know, I was originally born in. <laughs> Just, I know. It's really yeah. sad and scary. Yeah. So the, um, the meditation piece, um, we sent Anjali to an Art of Living class, um, which teaches breathwork um, to children. And then... We found it was very hard in a lot of circles to teach children to meditate that um, some people were saying, oh, they have to be at least 14 or whatever. I think you've missed the boat. Um, yes, you need them 100%. to know how to meditate, I would say, before middle school. Middle school years, particularly for girls, are very challenging. And also for yes. boys, on our girls' campus, there's already been two suicide attempts, and we're not even to Thanksgiving yet. So um, that's middle school. Wow. So, um, yeah, my master's thesis was on um, middle school girls and their experience um, and high school girls reflecting back on the middle school years. And I felt that both of my girls needed an extra added little something to get them through middle school. So I primed them in fifth grade to start meditation. And so by sixth grade, they were regular meditators 20 minutes every morning with me. And it's great. And Anjali now comes out of her meditation and says, Mom, you know that girl that was bullying me at school? Well, I realized that karmically, she kind of had it coming to her because she got bullied by the boys in class the other day. And kind of what comes around goes around, right? And I was just like, wow, Anjali, you know, that's so neat that you could see that. She says, yeah, it came to me in my meditation, mom. So if we can teach our, our kids to have that inner compass turn up, you know, a notch, wow that's going to be great for them throughout their whole lives. So it's amazing to hear that a daughter can understand that level. Yes, yes. I think um, meditation really helps you get clued in in that way where you can see a bigger picture sometimes, uh, a fuller picture, or it can complete something for you. 
Yes. Yeah. I think too, it's just like you said, when you breathe too, it makes you slow down and sort of, like you said, look at it from the bigger picture, yeah. like you yeah. said. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's a lifelong skill. And I feel very strongly that, you know, kids all around the world should be able to access that. And I think they'll be able to make healthier choices for themselves going forward. And, and then as they turn into adults for their families. A hundred percent. I feel really helps with Connor and I, my husband, Connor, and I talk about extreme ownership and not being like blaming something on someone else, but just completely being like, you know what, it's, I need to take responsibility for whatever it is that's happening, regardless of whether or not it really is your responsibility. And I mm-hmm. think meditating really helps kids do that. And it does. I, adults need to do this. They're not seeing this with adults. So true. So true. Yeah. And being held accountable. Um, I find that there's definitely more accountability um, as well. Um, You know, when they come out of their meditations um, and they're learning to say, yeah, I did that mom, you know, especially when one with ADHD, it's it's sometimes hard for her to admit, you know, Um, she almost blinded me in my left eye um, about a year and two months back by throwing a dog ball launcher ball right into my eye. And oh my I couldn't see in that eye. I had to go off to emergency. Um, I couldn't see for a couple of days. And it was really scary because, you know, I've already, I already fight to keep my vision as it is. But yes. for her yes. to see me going through that, she ended up getting sick um, and missed like a week of school. And I know it was because she felt really guilty and responsible and it was hard for her to accept, but it made us oh. kind of realize your ADHD is something that we have to address. Um, that, right. you know, and that's when we, we started with the meditation, um, realizing, you know, this is serious business. Um, people could get hurt when you have ADHD and then her coming back and realizing, yeah, okay, you're right. Um, I need to take responsibility and I need to, um, you know, breathe, focus on my breath when I want to just jump and do something. Yes. Maybe I need to <laughs> breathe it through. Yes. I mean, eyes beyond her years. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of maturity there. Um, yes. A and, lot and of maturity. She's, she's repeated a grade. She had to repeat first grade and she's, it's interesting. You know, you look at the psychoeducational testing. She went from um, bottom of the barrel on her focus and her working memory to in the average range um, when we tested wow. her recently a couple weeks ago. And so that's what I said to the school is please look at this, that yeah. this is amazing that a child without medication can, you know, make bridge this gap in a relatively short amount of time. Yes. And it's, it's cheaper. <laughs> yeah. For a bunch of drugs, you know, that's right. And, and I also, there's no side effects. Kind of medication. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Don't do that. Yeah. The side effects are all good. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah, they are. I mean, better health. You kind of, you have a lot more um, activity in that frontal cortex. Yes. Better decision making. Um, you know, more in the present moment. Uh, I find my daughter that's blind focuses a lot on the future and a lot on the past. And I'm, I'm constantly reminding her, listen, I'm right here in this moment. Please join me. <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> My husband says that. Does me. he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's like, Jamie, you just, you're spiraling now. It's, you're, you're good. It's right here. <laughs> yeah. It's good that he reminds you and that you have somebody 
who can remind you of that. Yeah, he's bring it back to the present. Yes, he's amazing with with that kind of stuff. I'm very grateful and appreciative of that. Wonderful. <laughs> and so, lastly, I just want to kind of see what kind of advice you have for someone that's looking to adopt, or even how can people want adopting best support adoption. So I caught the first part of the question, but the last part was garbled. So the first part in terms of what advice would you give somebody who's interested in adopting, right? Yes. That, that part I heard. Yeah. So I think you have to really narrow things down and figure out if you are interested in international adoption or local adoption, open adoption or closed adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, in this day and age and with the internet, you might even do an international adoption, but you might even connect um, through the web wow. um, with that down the track somewhere. Um, I've been hearing that that's sometimes happening too. Um, and I think that's something you have to, to decide and see what's right for you and your family. Um, so that's mm-hmm. one decision to be made. Of course, you have to do your research and find out which adoption agencies are most supportive for both local adoption or international adoption. Uh, talk to other parents who have gone both routes in order to help yourself decide. I'm a big fan of doing informational interviews and um, getting more information. And I think you only really then can make the right decision for you after you've done a certain amount of informational interviewing. Yes. And also um, a certain amount of, you know, web research. Um, There are a lot of Mm -hmm. Yahoo group lists um, and other lists that you can get on for people who have adopted. I would definitely spend some time there reading through uh, people's comments, know that if you're wanting to adopt, you do have to stay open-minded about learning differences, um, physical differences, uh, that mm-hmm. children you know, come in all different colors, shapes, sizes, and um, with all kinds of issues. Um, and yes. so <laughs> you have to be open enough to that and, and decide what you f- who you feel you can parent. I mean, obviously not everyone feels like they can parent a child that's blind, But because of my unique background, I felt that I could, Mm -hmm. that that wasn't a huge barrier for me. But um, I was talking to another um, woman who adopted a boy from China yesterday, and she adopted a child that had to have three pretty serious surgeries in the first year and a half of coming home. And he came home at two years old. So by three and a half years old, he'd had these surgeries. I am not good with medical things. My husband is, but I could have never done that. So um, it's a matter of, you know, figuring out yourself and what you feel you can, you can do and what you can parent. Um, For me, I'm happy to parent on the emotional side, you know, um, because of my background, I feel strong emotionally. So, um, so yes, that's what I would say. And then the second part of your question was garbled. What was it? Um, I was going to say, how best can somebody support adoption, even if they're not looking to adopt themselves? Good question. Um, Definitely. There are adoption agencies that really need financial support. Um, Adopt International in San Francisco um, is our local one. Um, I'm not sure what's down in San Diego and in the LA area, but you can do um, a search and um, they always need uh, your financial donations. They can also use for a lot of their activities and events, uh, volunteers to help put them on. Um, So that's a good route to go. There are also... Um, sometimes, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, refugees, um, and that Uh need support. There's a lot of children, um, in the refugees that are coming in. That's another way to support some of them, um, don't have parents. 
um, that are with them. Yeah. And uh, we have gone through volunteer match online and my husband has sometimes donated his time. He's a radiologic technologist to going to some of the career um, information, career uh, fairs um, where young stars are learning about different careers and trying to figure out a career path for themselves. So that's another um, way to have access to um, children who are, you know, in the system or orphans that are um, looking to broaden their horizons and, and get a career of some kind in their teenage years. Um, so those are just a few different ways. But, yeah, that's um, great. That's a wide range of resources that you can use to help and support. Yeah, I think there probably is, um, there's also big adoption. Um, there's grants, like a lot of the, uh, if you're looking to adopt, that's nothing to look into, if, especially if you're looking at a child with special needs. There's a lot of um, promise grants, they're usually called. And um, I heard about one recently, I wish I could remember the name of it, I don't remember right now, but um, it's for people who are looking to adopt and they've given away millions of dollars to couples who wanted to adopt but couldn't afford it. So I'm so sad I can't remember the name of the organization, but um, I'm sure people could find it online Um, because that can be a barrier, right? The the cost definitely can be a barrier. Yeah, and I've heard that it's expensive. I just didn't really realize how expensive it is. I mean, that's pretty expensive. Local adoption (laughs) can sometimes be a little less expensive because you don't have the international travel costs. Gotcha. So that's... That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. And also, too, I mean, are you open to adopting a child that's, you know, biracial and you're having a multiracial family? Um, there right. is, when you adopt a child that looks like you, there's, you know, yeah. you can hide in that really easily. No one really knows that your child's right. adopted, but okay. we can't hide anywhere yeah. we go. We cannot hide. And we, we laugh because our exchange students get lumped in as another adopted looking <laughs> child. So we think that's, they think that's kind of funny and it takes them some time to get used to it. But um, we just don't have that kind of um, invisibleness. Yeah. I also read, and you kind of touched on it. Um, people think that they're going to adopt and save the child from their culture. And that's not what they do. You want to embrace wow. the culture that they came from. Yeah, I, I read that. Yes. It was... Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I've, I've heard that there's some Christians that have, you know, thought that right. um, and think along those lines. And I've come across a few people online that have thought like that. I certainly don't, um, but it sounds kind of funny. I know both of our girls were born to Hindu families, mm-hmm. and I have not given either of them beef. I feel that <laughs> <laughs> that would not be okay with their birth families and to respect their birth parents and grandparents, I just feel really strongly about that. I, yeah. I'll give them chicken. I'll give them fish, you know, turkey, but I just will not give them, you know, red meat. So right. you have to that, figure out, you know, where yes. you are comfortable and yes. where you're going to draw the line. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so, so much. This was such a joy and so eye-opening and loved it so, so much. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. And um, make sure that if anyone, you know, wants to talk adoption, that um, you connect us because um, we're really here to help other families go down this path and, you know, try and make a dent in that millions amount of children who are orphans on the planet. I agree. And I definitely will do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Of course. Have a great weekend. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, 
want to share your story, or know a mother's story that needs to be shared, please message me directly. Thank you.